You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep these laws. Have mercy upon us, Lord Jesus, and write all these thy laws on the fleshy tablets of our hearts, we beseech thee. In Jesus' name, amen. My apologies for the uh, misprint in the bulletin. Uh, Canon Jacob didn't uh, lose her brakes uh, and just keep going. Uh, that was intentional. So I'm glad that she read all of it. Uh, but because it's not printed in your bulletin, you might want to have your Bible open or simply open in your bulletin to that part that is headlined the Decalogue. Because this morning I would like for us to look at the place and role of the Ten Commandments in our lives. Now, when coming to the Ten Commandments, there seem to me to be two extremes. Uh, One extreme is to say that, well, the Ten Commandments do not apply to us anymore. Uh, They're old, they're out of date, and we simply don't need to pay attention to them anymore. Uh, The second is that not only are they in force, But our spiritual ability to live up to them determines our faithfulness and our standing with God. That is, if you really are going to be faithful, then you need to be able to follow each and every single one of these commandments as commanded and perfectly. Now, both of these positions, both of these extremes, whether you say the Ten Commandments need to go or whether you think that they are the litmus test to your faithfulness to God, both are equally wrong. In the first instance, when we say they don't apply to us anymore, uh, this is the person who says, you know, the law of God, these ten words, they would put a real damper on my social life. Uh, They're an impediment to me pursuing my ambitions and my hopes and dreams, and so therefore I'm going to discard it. There are others who actually may try to spiritualize it but still say the same thing. They may even say things like, well, because Jesus came along, we don't really need to worry about that anymore, and I'm free to pretty much do whatever I want and and to say whatever I want and, and to live life as I see fit because I'm now free in Jesus. But of course, both of those make the error of the first position of assuming that the Ten Commandments do not apply to us anymore. But then the second position that, oh no, they apply and they are in full force and they are the absolute standard of what it means to be a faithful person, that's the position of the legalist and the person who is self-righteous. This is the person who believes that the law will save you and the one that believes that they can actually keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. If you remember from reading Pilgrim's Progress as a congregation, which is a really great thing for us to do, and it's a great work, and so many things in Pilgrim's Progress stick with you. And one of the characters that was a favorite of Dean Limehouse and probably stuck with you too was Mr. Worldly Wiseman. Do you remember him? Where Christian is coming along and he's carrying this great burden this pack on his back, and it's the burden of his shame and guilt when it comes to sin. 
And Mr. Worldly Wise Man sees him and says, you know, Christian, you don't have to carry that anymore. And Christian, eager to get this burden off of his back, is anxious to hear what Mr. Worldly Wise Man has to say. He says, all you have to do is go over to that town called Morality. And there, there are two people that you ought to talk to. One is just as good as the other, but legality or his son's civility. And they'll tell you exactly how to get rid of the pack. And of course, what Mr. Worldly Wise Man is saying is if you just do the right thing all the time, if you live up to the Ten Commandments, then you'll be free of this burden of shame and guilt when it comes to sin. But as Christian makes his way to morality, anxious to get rid of the pack, he comes upon this great mount. And this is how Bunyan describes it. So Christian turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help. But behold, when he was got now hard by the hill, it seemed so high, and also that the side of it, there was this wayside which did hang over so much that Christian was afraid to venture further, lest the hill should fall on his head. Wherefore there he stood still, and wanted not what to do. Also his burden now seemed heavier to him than while he was in his way. There came also flashes of fire out of the hill that made Christian afraid that he should be burned. Here, therefore, he sweat and did quake for fear. Right, in the first instance of saying, ah, they just don't apply to you, which is, of course, not what God intends, but in the second instance to think that somehow the law has the ability to save us and relieve us of our burden, Christian gets to this Mount Sinai, and it's so frightensome that it's as if the hill itself is going to fall down upon him, and his burden, which it was supposed to lift, now seems even heavier. And so as he stood watching the flashes of fire, he did sweat and quake for fear. And so if we're not just to simply discard the Ten Commandments, and if they don't have the ability to actually save us from sin and death, then what role do they play? Well, in the first instance, the Ten Commandments reveal to us the will of God. This is what God's heart looks like. This is what he has to say. This is his will for his people. But notice that this means, if they're from the mouth of God, that they're applicable to everyone, whether they're Christians or not. And for the longest time, the culture believed that. And as a student at the University of Virginia, the old law school is now a science building, and I remember taking astronomy lectures there. And as you go into the great atrium, there are these murals on the wall, and one of the most prominent ones is Moses receiving the law at Sinai. So even the law, uh, the law school at Mr. Jefferson's University was openly and readily acknowledging that the Ten Commandments are applicable to everyone, that they're a basis of law. They're the will of God. This especially means that they are God's will for those of us who are his children. They're house rules, if you will. And if you notice, the first half of the Ten Commandments, roughly, 
talk about our relationship to God. And then the second half of the Ten Commandments talk to, uh, talk to us about our relationship with other people. They express God's will. This is how you relate to me, and this is how you relate to your neighbor. Secondly, the Ten Commandments show us the need for a Savior. Martin Luther called the law God's hammer. That is, when we hear the law of God, it breaks us. It does not encourage us, but causes us to shake with fear as we run from the hill of legality, as Christian did, back to the path that leads to salvation. There's another funny scene in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian and Faithful are speaking, and Faithful is telling his story, and he recounts to Christian how at one point he was walking along, minding his own business, and all of a sudden this man overtook him and just began to beat him with a stick for no good reason. And then the man ultimately left him for dead, and Faithful couldn't make heads or tails out of it, but Christian said, I know who that was. Christian says, that man that overtook you was Moses. He spareth none, neither knoweth he how to show mercy to those that transgress his law. That's one of the functions of the law. It's to crush us and to bring us low and to open our eyes to see the necessity of a Savior who is Jesus Christ. When we find that we have no hope in the law, we see that our only hope for salvation is in Jesus. And so now let's look at these commandments and see how they show us God's will and our great need for a Savior. God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God here is reminding his people, not just the Israelites, but us today, that his name is I Am. And he also talks of the great act of salvation and bringing the Hebrews out of the bondage of slavery into Egypt, which is just a foreshadowing of the great deliverance that we have, even greater than that of the deliverance from Egypt, that we have being brought out of the bondage of the slavery of sin into new life and freedom in Jesus Christ. Now the Israelites, they're still in the wilderness as they receive these Ten Commandments. The wilderness is a place where they had to rely on God for their everything. Food, water, protection. Who is able to sustain a nation of people in the desert? God says, I am. I am the God that will provide for your every need, who will shepherd you and guide you and love you. And so God tells them, you shall not have any other gods but me. I alone am able, and I alone deserve to be worshipped. I alone can command men and women to follow me. All others are false idols that lead to destruction. But here you and I are on a Sunday. We're here in the name of this very living God. The great I am. But who really has control of our lives? 
Who is it that determines, or what is it that determines how we live day to day? Do you know this living God as he is, as the great I am? Or do you kind of believe in him, but hedge your bets and make sure that relief might come from somewhere else? That doesn't mean being irresponsible when it comes to money or, or your job. But what's the priority in your life that actually arranges the rest of your life? What sits on the throne of your life that is likely to displace the living God? That's the real point of this commandment. Who do you worship? What do you worship? And it's not just an hour on Sundays. It's seven days a week, 24 hours a day, that there's some motivating force in each and every single one of our lives that shapes our lives in such a way that we begin to look like the thing we worship. That's what God is getting at here in this first commandment. He continues, you shall not have for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. The command given here is not just about making a representation of God in the form of an animal, as in the case of the making of the golden calf, which happens with the Israelites later on in Exodus 32. But it certainly does mean that. We shouldn't do it. But what God is saying here is that any representation of him that is the product of our own limited human imaginations ought to be destroyed, discarded, never attempted. Any likeness of him that will provoke jealousy because those of us who gaze upon those images are given a false impression of who God is. Now, I say this with a little bit of trepidation because I realize I'm surrounded by windows with images of God. And there is one window in particular which I don't think is able to get around this commandment, and that's the one over here to the right, and you can see uh, a representation of God the Father in the top of the window. And it's hard for us not to look at that and to think, ah, that must be what God looks like. But God doesn't look like Burl Ives. He doesn't. And as hard as it is for me to say this, even as we look on this window, which I have, I, don't want, I want you to know I'm not being an iconoclast because the number of sermons you've heard me preach where I am pointing to these windows and using them to shed light. But even this glorious window here in the middle that depicts the crucifixion has no way of capturing the true agony and the true glory of what happened on that Good Friday 2,000 years ago. They're always going to fall short. But you know what? We could get rid of all these windows, and we would still be creating false images of God in our hearts. So let's not comfort ourselves by saying, yeah, we'll just get rid of the images. Because at any given moment, as John Calvin reminds us, our hearts are idle factories. And pictures or not, we're constantly projecting on God our own ideas of who we think God is and what he ought to be like. And incidentally, God ends up looking a whole lot like you and me.
And that's really what God is getting at. Take the windows out if you want, but the real problem is the human heart, which is attempting to make God into our own image. He furthers this and really gets to the heart of the matter when he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, taking the Lord's name in vain is not just an obscenity. Yes, if you use OMG, or what I'm actually hearing lately is something very strange. I've, I've heard it time and time again where people say, oh my God, G-A-W, as if that somehow gets you out of jail free. Um, you're still in violation of the commandment uh, if you're doing that. Uh, and of course you are in violation of the commandment if you're doing those things. But more than just profaning God's name, to take the Lord's name in vain means to treat God as empty, as nothing, as non-existent. Because of course this is what the word vain means. So what I think the Lord is really getting at is when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, when you enter into the family of God by adoption through his grace and mercy, you are a child of the king and you take upon yourself the name of Jesus Christ. This commandment is a warning to us about living as if that is not true. It's a reminder of whose we are and what we represent in the world. Any number of us can say, well, I don't use the Lord's name in an inappropriate way. I don't use those words. But what about our lives? What do they say of the Lord's name? Does your life, does my life point to Jesus? Do we bear the family resemblance? Do we carry the family name? Or is the relationship with God in vain? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For Christians, we no longer keep the Jewish Sabbath of Saturday, but we have the Lord's Day today, the day of the resurrection, Sunday. And this day is set aside for a day of rest and a day of worship where we gather together as God's people, as members of God's family around his word to hear his word and to praise him. Now this, if we are honest, is, practically speaking, the commandment we care least about. Because to break this commandment really doesn't hurt anybody else. It hurts God. Between our busy schedules and our own capitulation to cultural pressures, none of us is willing to say, in honesty, I honor the Sabbath. I honor the Lord's day. I honor the rest that he calls us to. Now, I'm not talking about getting down to the nitty-gritty like we used to do where, you know, are you allowed to play cards? Are you allowed to go to the movie theater? That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is for us to get over ourselves and to think that we don't need a day of rest. Even God rested, who certainly doesn't need a day of rest, on that day. And so for us to say, I don't really need a day of rest is to say, I'm actually more capable of, than God is to do what needs doing. And indeed, so many of us won't hesitate to skip church on a Sunday because we had a big weekend or have other commitments. 
But very few of us are willing to change our plans or to be better stewards of our time or to miss getting our children to sports practices for fear of them sitting out the game that week. Why? Because the truth of the matter is is that we fear the world and our coaches and social ostracization than the living God. Now, the remaining commandments, which talk about our relationship to one another, can be summarized together. I'm not going to go through all of them as I just did with that. Time doesn't allow, and and God himself lumps them all together in uh, all these neat verses, the remaining six. Now, at this point, uh, I hope that the law is doing its work on your heart, and you're thinking, okay, Andrew, how about something a little bit more cheery? Well, how about this? Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet. Though you may have been convicted by the first four commandments, you might begin to think that things are looking up for you. You say to yourself, well, yes, I've honored my father and my mother. I've taken good care of them. I've got them up at St. Martin's in the Pines, and they've got Wi-Fi, and it's really nice, and three squares a day, and I visit them twice a week on Tuesdays and Fridays, and I've never murdered anybody. I've not committed adultery. I've not stolen anything, as far as anybody knows. I've not borne false witness against my neighbor, and I'm not coveting anything of my neighbor's because he drives a terrible car, and I'd never want that anyway. But have you really kept them all? Is that really what God is saying? Well, in Luke chapter 18, we hear of this encounter with Jesus in a man that has come to be known as the rich young ruler. And this man comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Now you notice he just, the the, the latter commandments, the ones that are outwardly easier to keep, the ones that, that have to do with our neighbor. And what does this man say? All these I have kept from my youth. Really? When Jesus heard this, he looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And the man went away sad. You see, what Jesus was doing is saying, you think that you've kept the commandments, and you might have outwardly, but where your treasure is, there's your heart. Who sits on the throne of your life? And this man certainly must not have been there where Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that if anyone lusts after another man or another woman in their hearts, I tell you that they're just as guilty as the person who did commit adultery, spiritually speaking. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you that if you've hated your brother or your sister in your heart, you're just as guilty as the person who has pulled the trigger. It's not just about outward conformity. It points to the spiritual reality inwardly of the shape of our hearts. And not just our difficulty in keeping these commands, but the impossibility of keeping these commands. Before the law of a holy God, 
we all stand condemned and without excuse. But in Jesus, we know that none of these sins is unforgivable. In fact, the transgression of them ought to thrust us into the arms of Jesus. Do you understand that? That in Jesus Christ, where there is plenteous grace and redemption that was poured out for you upon the cross, that there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness for the idolater, the profaner, the Sabbath breaker, the rebellious child, the murderer, the adulterer, the thief, the liar, and the coveter. That list, my friends, is a description of the inhabitants of heaven. That's who gets those who once walked in those ways and have taken that identity off and not fled to the law for rescue. It's not about, I just need to stop doing this and and start doing that. But they fled to Jesus and they found rescue and healing and forgiveness in him. Those who were once alienated from God now come near as the demands of the law, the consequences of the law, the condemnation of the law, has now all been laid upon Jesus at the cross. He took it all upon himself. Jesus said, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. His perfect obedience to God's commands has now been given to us, and we are clothed in his righteousness. Do you understand that? That in Jesus, his perfect righteousness is given to us. And so now the accusation of the law, which we hear in our ears, which calls you an an adulterer, which calls you a thief, which calls you uh, someone who is not a friend of God, who's an idol maker, who takes the Lord's name in vain, those accusations now fall silent in the drowning roar of God's grace to us in Jesus. These commandments are not the measures of one's faith. One could outwardly conform to each and every single one and still be alienated from God. If being able to follow the Ten Commandments to the letter of the law is the standard for Christianity, none of us are Christians. Indeed, They express the will of God for his people who are called to be different. But we find that the only way that our hearts will love the things that God loves is not by trying harder, not by putting forth more effort into being the person that the Ten Commandments wants us to be, but it actually comes by fleeing to Jesus and resting in him, in his grace doing that transformative power in your heart where these laws which were once written on hard tablets of stone now begin to be written on the fleshy tablets of our hearts. It's appropriate this morning, in light of what God is saying to us, that we come to the Lord's table for communion. We come to a place where we have demonstrated for us God's great love for his commandment breakers, those of us who have been broken by the law, 
and those of us who want to be made more like him. We come to this table to be fed. We come for forgiveness. We come for mercy. We come for Jesus. We come not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Calvary. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mountain outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. I hope you understand that. And I hope you're not left this morning reflecting and lost in your sin and trespasses and wondering, well, if this is God's standard and I can't live into it, then surely I'm a miserable person. I feel acutely my inability to live up to the law. But my friend, it's not about that. It's about turning to Jesus Christ and seeing his grace transform your life and rescue you. And so as we come to the table this morning, I can't help but remember the story that John Murray, the great Scottish theologian of the 20th century, told when he was recalling a a Church of Scotland pastor serving Holy Communion in the context of his church body. And back in that day, they'd have a table, and everyone would actually be seated around the table. And he noticed that as the bread went by and it was passed from person to person. There was a woman he knew well pastorally. He knew her struggles. He knew her. He was a good pastor. And he noticed that as the bread came to her, she let it pass by. And tears began to stream down her face so that when the cup made its way to her, right before it was passed up to her, the pastor got up and he took it in his hands and he thrust it at the woman and in a Scottish accent said, take it woman, it's for sinners. That's what God is saying to us this morning. As we hear the law, but as we hear God's marvelous grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we come to his table this morning, won't you receive Jesus? Take him. He's for sinners. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.